Welcome to the Access Church Podcast. We exist to bring you life-changing and life-giving content to help you on your lifelong journey with Jesus. To learn more about who we are, visit accesschurch.com. That's access spelled A-X-E-S-S. Let's jump right into it. If you would, turn your Bibles today to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 today. As you get there, I want to share that I, I titled the message today, On the Edge. On the Edge. Because as I was studying this week, as I was reading and just meditating on, on where this meets us in life, how this connects with us as a church, and even as human beings, I noticed that sometimes life can push us to the edge. It can push us to the edge with difficult and, frankly, draining situations that we encounter in our lives. And the the worst part about it is oftentimes these things that are draining and difficult in our lives are things that we never asked for in the first place. I don't think anybody in their right mind would ask for a difficult situation, but it seems that they just come up and they find us all the time. They find us as if we were elected in some kind of lottery that we never entered into. And the the winning prize is you get a tough circumstance that you need to go through. And over time, these situations, they weigh on us and they lead to hopelessness. And as hopelessness sets in and answers are fleeting, we are pushed closer and closer to the edge. And the edge is the place where You just don't know what else to do anymore. Maybe some of you have felt that way. You just don't know what else to do anymore. You've searched everywhere that you know to search for the answers. You've gone everywhere you know to go for help. You've done everything that you know to do. But when everything else has been exhausted, what happens is we just kind of make our home right there on the edge. You say, we don't. We don't know what else to do anymore, so I'm just going to accept this situation as my new reality. This is just how it's going to be moving forward, and that's the state of hopelessness. So if you're not feeling encouraged yet, I promise we'll get there. Today in Mark chapter 5, we're going to read three different stories of people that are facing hopeless situations. And in each of these situations, we're going to see Jesus through the eyes of those people, which has been our goal through this whole series called, Who is this? Who is this is just answering that question through the eyes of the people that we find in the gospel of Mark. And the reason why we took that perspective is because that's the way that Mark wrote the gospel in the first place. Mark was very intentional to take uh, uh, the back seat when it came to testifying about Jesus. And he lets the people that encountered Jesus along the way tell their stories. And as we enter into those stories 2,000 years later, we can see Jesus through them. We can hear the testimony of those people saying, this is who Jesus is. So if you're wondering today, who is this Jesus? We're going to learn a little bit more about that. Starting in verse 1, going to verse 8, if you would follow along with me. It sets the scene. It says, they, meaning the disciples and Jesus, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. 
When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. There is a documentary that's out about the Chicago Bulls when they were in their most winningest time, winningest, winningest time in franchise history, winning six titles uh, over the span of, I believe it was seven years or eight years, somewhere in there. They won a lot. It's called The Last Dance. It's on Netflix. And one of the stories in there is about Game 5 of the NBA Finals in 1997. Now, the Finals, if you don't know basketball, that's the Super Bowl of basketball, but they break it up into seven games. So they were tied. They had already played four games. They were playing against the Utah Jazz, and they were tied 2-2. Two and two. And going into Game 5, the Chicago Bulls traveled to the the. Utah uh, to face the Jazz on their home court. And the night beforehand, uh, in this documentary, Michael Jordan's personal trainer shares this story. The story goes like this. It's late in the night before game, game five, and Michael Jordan is feeling hungry. So he decides he wants a pizza, so he orders a pizza. And when the delivery guys come up, now, there was, keep in mind, there's only one place that was open that had pizza at that time. So they ordered from, they found the one place they ordered. And when the guys came to deliver the pizza, the trainer opened the door and he tells the story. He says, when I opened it up, there was like four people that came to deliver the pizza, which was just odd in the first place. Usually it's one delivery person, but there was four of them. And he said they were looking really suspect. Just really odd and suspicious, like they were up to something. So he took the pizza in, he put it on the table, and, and he tells Michael, and, and there's other people in the room too, he said, something feels off, I don't think we should eat this pizza. But Michael Jordan was hungry. So Michael Jordan ate the pizza. No one else in the room ate the pizza. Well, just a few hours into the night, Michael Jordan wakes up, and he's vomiting profusely. And he can't stop vomiting. No one else was sick because no one else ate the pizza. So it comes game time the next day. It's a big game. And news breaks out that Michael Jordan has the flu. Well, he actually didn't have the flu. He probably had food poisoning. But everyone's going nuts. What's going to happen? Is Michael Jordan going to play? Is he going to be able to fight for his team in this important game? And I just wonder... When this news comes out, what did the Utah Jazz begin to think? Michael Jordan is the greatest player, definitely of that era, most likely of all time. And there's a potential that he's going to be out of the game tonight in the finals. 
they're probably feeling really good at that time. Their number one player is going to be out. We're on our home court. The series is tied. We have a chance to take it over. Everything is moving in our favor. And then Michael Jordan decides to play. And he comes out, and he ends up scoring 38 points that game, giving Chicago the victory over Utah. How devastated were they? How defeated did they feel? They thought they had everything going for them, but then Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan and wins the game, even with the limitations that were placed on him. These demons that were inside of this man they see jesus getting out of the boat coming up to the shore and you know what they're thinking jesus you've messed up this time you've messed up this time and i'm going to tell you why they thought that see demons lived in graveyards and tombs that was a very common understanding of the time that was their home court. That's where they dwelled. That's why this man who was possessed by many demons was living there. Why? Because they had possessed him to the point where he just began to live where they lived. It was their home court. Here's another thing that's interesting is if you look at the timing, even before this event, it says that Jesus and his disciples got into the boat late into the night and they traveled across the lake, arriving at this location, which would tell me, at the very least, it was either still dark out or the sun was barely climbing over the horizon. One other thing is this. Everyone knew at that time that demons were most active in the nighttime. That was their hour, their hours of activity was in the night. So now Jesus is standing on their home court. He's standing there in their preferred time. And then on top of that, they have something against Jesus, and this is what it is. They think Jesus is coming to destroy them because they know that at the end time, when all is said and done, when Jesus comes back the second time, they know that's the end for them, and there's no coming back for it, from it. And they think that Jesus is coming to end them right there. But they actually push back against Jesus. They say, do not destroy us. And they actually say to him, in God's name, don't torture us. In God's name, don't torture us. They actually appeal to God the Father to tell Jesus, have mercy on us. Don't destroy us yet. We know that our time is coming, but don't destroy us yet. And what's fascinating is that Jesus actually has mercy on them and does not destroy them. He sends them into a herd of pigs. You see, Jesus, he's stronger than the enemy on the enemy's best day. Jesus is stronger than your situation on your situation's best day. Jesus is stronger than your enemy on your enemy's best day. These demons thought we have everything going for us. It's our home court. It's our time. And we have a reason to tell Jesus, do not destroy us. As in, let this situation persist. Let this situation not come to an end. What happens 
in your life when you have a bad situation already going, but then your bad situation has its best day. Think about that for a second. What happens when your marriage is already on the rocks and then you lose your job on top of that? Your worst situation has its best day. It's a sense of hopelessness. What happens when money is tight and then you get medical bills that you weren't expecting? Your worst situation has its best day against you. What happens when you already have relational tension that's happening in your life and then you find out through a third party, oh, they're going around and gossiping about you. Your worst situation has its best day. Everything seems to be stacked up against you. It seems like your situation is saying you're on our court and there's nothing that you can do about it. Your situation is trying to take mastery over you, saying it's not my time to be destroyed yet. It's not my time to come to an end yet. Your situation has wiped out every human attempt to fix it. Just like it said about the man, it says they tried to shackle him down. They tried to, to, to settle him, but they couldn't do it. He broke through every situation, every attempt, every human attempt to subdue him. What happens when your worst situation has, has become your only reality? Where you think this is just how it's going to have to be moving forward. This is where I live now. Jesus goes on to ask the demons. He says, what is your name? This is the only time that Jesus does this. Usually you just cast them out. It would be a little thing for him. Just move on. But Jesus in this situation, he still... He's still Jesus. He still has the power. There's nothing different about the situation, but he seems to slow down for a moment. He says, what's your name? And they reply, plural, legion, for there are many of us. But I think it's interesting that Jesus took the time to say, what's your name? Jesus took the time to say, you have to answer to me. You have to speak up and answer to me right now. Because Jesus goes to the source of hopelessness. And when he gets there, he says, you have to answer to me. You don't get to work on your own terms any longer. Because when I show up, you have to answer to me. What is your name? What is your name? And after they answer, he says, leave. Go. You can't stay here any longer. This situation cannot persist any longer. It ends right here because hopelessness has to answer to Jesus. Amen? Look at Mark 5, 18 to 29. The people that were living around that region, Jesus cost them a lot of money. Because he told the legion of demons, he said, you can go into a herd of pigs. And the Bible says there was about 2,000 swine, 2,000 pigs. And they all ran down a hill and drowned in a lake. Could you imagine if you were the one that, that owned the 2,000 pigs? That was your 401k. That was your life savings. That was your inheritance to your kids. And in a matter of about 10 minutes, it's all gone. <laughs> so they're like, yeah, Jesus... We want you to go. We want you to leave. We, we can't handle this anymore. So Jesus doesn't make it any farther than the shore. And 
Picking up in verse 18, it says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. I want to pause for a second. The townspeople told Jesus, we don't want you here. You need to go. And so Jesus is packing up, getting ready to get back in the boat. He just walked out of probably 15 minutes before that. But he tells this man who's been delivered from a legion of demons. He says, I want you to go and tell your story. The reason this is significant is because every other time Jesus would heal somebody, he would tell them the opposite. He would say, please don't tell anybody, although they would go and do it anyways. Well, they were in Gentile territory now. Jesus would say that when he was in Jerusalem, when he was in primarily Jewish regions. But now he's in Gentile territory, which is why they had 2,000 swine in the first place, because that was an unclean animal to Jewish people. But Jesus tells the man, go and tell your story. Even though I'm being pushed out, what I've done for you will still live on. So it picks up, it says, When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Jesus just can't seem to get off the edge of the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. He says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Really quickly, this is really funny. When Luke tells this story, Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, he omits that whole second part of it. He just says, she tried many times and couldn't get better. He, he didn't slander his own profession. But Mark says, yeah, the doctors didn't do anything for this, this woman. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. When we're in the throes of life, we're in the midst of these hopeless and helpless situations It's easy to wonder, and maybe you've been here before, it's easy to wonder if your faith is strong enough or if you have enough faith. Because life weighs on us, these situations weigh on us, and it can take a toll on our faith. The question of when will this all be over? When will normalcy be restored to me? Why is this happening to me? It all takes a toll on us and certainly this woman would have been in that situation said she had suffered for 12 years with this issue of bleeding and then on top of that she's in a crowd of people and she's feeling the one person that can do something about this I don't have what it takes to even get his attention I can't get his attention in this crowd of people There were so many societal things that were working against this woman that made her unworthy to come and get the attention of someone, no less a rabbi. 
And then you add into the mix that a prominent synagogue leader has now come and fallen at the feet of Jesus. A synagogue leader who had social status has now come and stolen the show, has stolen Jesus' attention, or so she thought. Sometimes in our helpless situations, I mean, picture this woman. She's in a crowd of people that are all pressing around Jesus. Sometimes when we're hopeless, we look around and we think, everybody else could figure this out except me. Everybody else here could get Jesus' attention. Everybody else here has faith, but I don't. If they were in this situation, they'd be able to get through it because I know that they're, they're prayer warriors. They have the faith to do it, but I, I don't. I don't have what it takes to do it. But she thought, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She was just saying, all I need to do is this little bit. I can't get his attention. I can't break through the crowd. But if I can just do this little thing, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be healed. She did not account for what happened next. Picking up in verse 30, it says, At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Faith is faith, and there is no size too small for Jesus. This woman probably thought, I don't have what it takes to get healed. I don't have what it takes to get his attention. I only have this little bit, but that little bit was enough. And there's times when you feel I don't have enough faith. I don't have what it takes. But all you need to know is just a little bit is enough. Just a little bit is enough. You know, when, when your car is running low on gas, you know how much gas you need? Just enough to get you to the gas station. That's all you need when your tank is low. Same works for faith. When you feel like everything's against you, when you feel like you don't know, you don't have what it takes, all you need is enough to get you to Jesus. That's it. All you need is enough to get you to Jesus. Jesus stops in a crowd of people in the middle of trying to go to the first request that was made to him by Jairus about his daughter. And Jesus demands to know who touched him. He says, I need to know who just touched me. I felt power go out from me. It reminds me when I was living in California, when I was at uh, Bethel School of Ministry, I started to notice that there weren't many people from Chicago. I mean, when I say weren't many, I, I think there was two other people from Chicago there. And everybody else is talking about how, oh, I got all my friends, you know, because they're all from this state and this state. And then I'm like, oh, surely I'll run into somebody that's from Chicago. And it just, it just wouldn't happen. I was like the only one from Chicago. 
But then finally, through the grapevine, someone told me, oh yeah, there is a guy here that is from Chicago. And the moment I found out that there was somebody from Chicago, I became insistent, you need to introduce me to that person right now. I need to go meet them right now because we have a connection here that precedes our meeting together. The fact that we're from the same place, I'm already saying I need to go meet this person now. I need to be face-to-face with them because of the connection that already exists between us. The reason why Jesus was so insistent on saying, I must meet whoever touched me just now is because this woman's faith preceded her. Her faith went before her. Before she ever met Jesus face to face, her faith was already speaking on her behalf. And Jesus said, I have got to meet this person. Why? Why? Because anybody who has faith that can pull on the power of God without my attention is a person of faith, which means it's a person in my kingdom, and I need to meet this person. So he stopped the whole party, the whole thing, and said, show me who it is. When we have faith, we have something in common with the kingdom of God. Jesus sees your faith. I just need to speak that over you today. Jesus sees your faith. If you feel like you don't have enough, if you just have enough to get you to Jesus... He sees your faith. It's enough. Faith as a mustard seed. It's enough. This woman, she didn't confess him as Lord. She didn't even confess her sins. All she had was faith. And something that Mark does so brilliantly in this, as he shows contrast, you have this man that I've mentioned, Jairus, who's a man of prominence, And his social status gets him before Jesus quickly. And this woman who thinks she has no right to be there becomes the very person that Jesus is saying, I must know who this is. Because faith is what makes you special in the eyes of God. It's not any status. It's not anything you've accomplished before. It's not your family lineage. It's not your background. It's not your accolades. It's your faith. That is what makes you prominent in the eyes of God. Jesus doesn't just stop at healing this woman, though. He also calls her daughter. This is significant because he was telling her that she had a place in God's family and that she belonged there and that Jesus recognized her because of it. You see, the other part of this is that because of this woman's condition, she would have been unable to conceive a child. This would have made her ineligible for marriage because reproduction was the first and foremost thing that happened in a marriage. So the fact that she wouldn't be able to reproduce would mean that no man would ever wed her. And on top of that, As sad as this is, it probably would have brought shame from her very family because she wasn't able to have kids. She wasn't able to have a lineage of her own. 
So this is a woman that was likely pushed to the edge of society because of something that she never asked for, because of a situation that was given to her without her permission. And now she's pushed to the edge of society. But after she's healed, Jesus also heals her of her shattered identity. He says, daughter, daughter. Because while Jairus is getting ready, he's thinking, my family is about to fall apart because my daughter is sick and dying. While that's happening, Jesus is restoring a family, restoring a woman's identity in the process. But this again speaks to, look at the, the dynamic here. Jesus stops to tend to this woman's request. He stops to tend to this woman to meet her, to know who she is, to speak life into her, an identity over her. And this is what happens next. Mark chapter 5, 35 to 43. While Jesus was still speaking to this woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, at this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders to them not to let anyone know about it. And then he said, give her something to eat. So we see Jesus is now saying, don't tell anybody, because we're back in Jewish territory. When you focus on Jesus, Jesus focuses you back to a place of faith. I want you to think about Jairus for a second. He's thinking that Jesus is coming with him, going to heal his daughter. And then Jesus gets bogged down in this other situation. He sees some, some woman's there. Now Jesus is talking to this woman. They're having, well, they're having a long conversation. And then the people from the home come, and they bring the worst news that a father could ever get. Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. It's time to move on to a time of, of mourning. Jesus can't help you anymore. This is beyond his capability. This is beyond what he's able to bring back. I wonder if Jairus thought, man, if that woman had not stopped this, then my daughter would be fine. I wonder if he's feeling a little bit of aggravation, bitterness, resentment towards the situation that had just taken place. But it's in that that Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, do not be afraid, just believe. You know, when it comes to faith, it is possible to have faith 
and a little bit of fear at the same time. Those two things can live together. You know, Jesus had faith to go to the cross, but he also was facing severe anxiety as well. It's possible for those two things to be in the same world. But there comes a point where God says, okay, now the fear has to stay behind. And now it can only be faith moving forward. And this is what happens with Jairus. Jesus looks at him and he says, now there's a fork in the road. Do not be afraid, just believe. It is time to remove the fear out of the situation. And it's time to enter into just faith. Just faith that I'm going to do what I told you I was going to do. Even though they brought you the bad news, I already said I was coming to your home. I already said that I was coming. We have a, a Keila and I have a little dog, and she's a rambunctious little dog. And we're still teaching her how to be a good girl, even though we call her that all the time. And one of the things that she does, we live in a condo complex, and we take her outside to the courtyard. And the courtyard, because of so many people being there, and we're, you know, we're by a highway, it's loud all the time, and, and, and there's just a lot going on. And, and so she gets easily distracted, especially when another dog comes out. If another dog comes out, you've lost her attention. She is, she's turned into a 100-pound dog at that point. She's squaring up on other dogs. She's barking, you know, asserting her, her dominance of the territory, all this stuff. And I've been reading this book about dog training because I'm hopeless with the situation as well, training her. And they taught this thing where you get the dog to focus on your eyes. And you just say, you teach them, watch me. And you get them to make eye contact with you. And the whole point is that no matter what's happening around them, if you can get them to look at you in the eyes, they lose sight. They're not able to pay attention to everything else that's happening around them. They're only squared on your eyes at that point. And this is what Jesus is doing with Jairus right here. He's saying there's a lot going on. There's a lot that's happened. There's a lot that you're hearing right now. But I want you to look, look me in the eyes. And I'm saying do not be afraid. Just believe. Because when we come to Jesus, he focuses, us, he focuses us back on faith. He says, let's return to this place of faith. Just watch me. Just watch me. Would you guys stand with me?